Last time on Urge to Kill. Edwin Lara is an evil person, one of the few who are pure evil. Just tell us what you can tell us about the cousin involved. Yeah. Cousin's a suspect in uh, helping to dispose of the body. On the day we lost Kaylee, I lost so much more. She's been my best friend since I was 13 years old. You have no idea how much irreversible damage this piece of shit has done to my extended family. Almost three years after he murdered Kaylee Sawyer, Edwin Lara went to court in Eugene, Oregon. It was April of 2019, and he was about to be sentenced for the kidnapping of Andrea Mays. I bet she's here because this is the final chapter of her story. It would also be the first time we would see Edwin in person. We're on our way to federal court in Eugene to um, attend the sentencing of Edwin Lara for his kidnapping charge. Um, he kidnapped Andrea Mays after he killed Kaylee Sawyer, and so um, he'll be sentenced for that crime today. In court will be Andrea Mays and her family and also Kaylee Sawyer's family, so we hope to catch up with them. How do we feel about seeing Edwin for the first time and probably last time? It's going to be surreal, I think. I mean, just to see him in that courtroom face-to-face. I can't imagine what the victims are going through. It's always really weird to be in the same space. Like, there are a lot of moral rules that say don't commit crimes, like Edwin Lara has committed. And then being in the same room as a person who abides by moral and actual laws, it's always so weird to look somebody like that in the face because it's pretty heinous. I'm Ashley Korslin, and this is the final episode of Urge to Kill, a KGW original. Yeah, the devil's gonna take me home. When we got to the federal courthouse, I walked inside with my producers, Destiny and Mila. We weren't allowed to bring a camera or recording device in because of federal court rules. But we were able to watch the sentencing and take notes. We saw Kaylee's dad, her stepmom, and her grandparents all take their seats. Edwin sat in the front, facing the judge. It was strange to see him in person after spending months researching him for this podcast. And as I got my notebook out to write down a few things, Andrea walked into the room with her mom. Did you plan to speak that day in court in Eugene? I wasn't. I wasn't even going to be there that day. Like, I told my mom, I don't want to see him. I don't want to waste more of my time to give him. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm just going to go just to make sure, like, I don't look back and be like, I wish I would have gone and got that closure. And I just didn't want regrets. So I went and they're like, are you planning to speak? You know, um, just let us know. And I was like, I don't know yet, but um, I think I do want to say something. If I can't, the last second, can my mom say something on my behalf? And they're like, yeah, of course. Not only did she show up, but she had a powerful message for Edwin Lara. And so when I was there at court, I was just like, you know what? I want him to see my face. I want him to see me one last time before he's locked away forever. So he has this image of me in his head, like who I am and I'm a strong person. And So I was like, you know what, okay. And so I just typed up a little notepad on my phone of like something I wanted to say. And I like showed my mom and my advocate. And I was like, how does that sound? And they're like, that's perfect. And so when I went up there to go talk, like I kind of went off my little like note, what I was planning to say, like 
I don't know, this fire came out of me and I was just like, you need to hear me right now. And, and I made sure, like, I kept looking at him and he did not want to make eye contact until like a certain point. He finally looked at me, which like gave me the biggest satisfaction because at the last court hearing, everyone that spoke got zero reaction out of him. Mm-hmm. Like he just like was cold, didn't look at anyone, didn't make any like, like whatever. He just was like completely stone. And Getting him to look at me was like the biggest closure ever because I was like, you know who I am now. You see me for the last time and you've heard what I have to say to you and I don't have to hear anything you have to say ever again. But like my main thing in there was just like, you know what, like you tried to paint me as like this victim and this weak person and that's not who I am. I am a survivor and I did conquer you. I defeated you and I am moving past this, moving on with my life. He is a piece of scum, and I hope he rots for eternity. Once Andrea finished, the judge handed Edwin another life sentence to be served concurrently with his sentence for Kaylee's murder. The prosecutor referred to Edwin as one of the most dangerous men to ever walk through that courthouse. Edwin's attorney claimed the crime spree was an enigma, And then he said something that caught all of us by surprise. He gave a possible explanation for why Edwin did what he did. The attorney cited Edwin's genetic degenerative cognitive brain condition, something called myotonic dystrophy. The lawyer didn't elaborate much in court other than to say Edwin had undergone a recent evaluation that showed the brain condition and that his mother also has it. When we researched myotonic dystrophy, which is referred to as DM, here's what we found. According to the Muscular Dystrophy Association, DM is a form of muscular dystrophy and can affect muscles and other organs. The term myotonic refers to the inability to relax muscles at will, according to the MDA. The organization goes on to say that DM can cause learning disabilities, apathetic demeanor, and impairments in cognitive functioning. So I called Edwin's defense attorney, who referenced this condition in court. He declined to talk to me on the record, but I did ask if I could get a copy of Edwin's medical evaluation. He told me he couldn't release it because of HIPAA laws. He did tell me to ask Edwin directly about it, so we called the prison. I sat down with our podcast producer, Mila Mamitsa, to call the Eastern Oregon Correctional Institution, which is in Pendleton, Oregon. So I was wondering if you could tell me, um, I guess, the process of um, us hopefully contacting an inmate. We would like to speak with Edwin Lara. Would that go through you guys, or is that some kind of request we make to a superintendent, or how does that work? An administrator told us to fill out a formal request, and they would ask Edwin if he wanted to do an interview. So a couple weeks later, we checked back in. This is Mila calling from KGW. How are you? The same administrator told us the communications team had reviewed it, but ultimately denied us an interview. They didn't actually ask Edwin if he wanted to participate, but they talked to several people who interact with him every day. Um, Can you kind of just explain to me, um, does he get a lot of requests, or is this something that you guys usually deny off the top without speaking to the individual, or kind of how does that work? And here's their reasoning. The administrator told us that Edwin has been through a lot and his cases have been very public. They just didn't think an interview would be in his best interest for rehabilitation and just surviving day-to-day prison life. Okay. Well, I guess it is what it is. I I completely understand that and I appreciate your hard work um, and I appreciate your help. 
Okay, so they just flat out denied that, which is unfortunate. I just think it's bizarre that they didn't even talk to him. Well, I just thought it was weird, like, how he referenced what's happened to him, what's happened to Edwin. Right. It was never like, oh, this person has literally been convicted of murder. Um, So I guess moving forward, we'll reach out to um, the woman who's in charge of the Oregon Department of Corrections and see if there's another route. I just think it's absolutely bizarre to flat out reject this kind of request without even without even speaking to the inmate i I mean i wonder if they obviously know more than we do about his maybe his current mental state or Mm -hmm. what Mm -hmm. what his life is like behind um the prison walls but Mm -hmm. um maybe that's a peek behind the curtain a little bit i i do think you do see the human side of it right where um you know these people at the jail work day in and day out with Mm -hmm people who are in prison and I guess it shows the compassionate side of maybe them looking out for these other people. Mm -hmm. Um, But it just, I guess it it did just surprise me that they didn't even speak to him about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, um, I mean, we obviously don't know how many of these like communication requests he gets. Sure. But I do wonder what this speaks to in Edwin's mental health state or, you know, I don't want to be worried about how he's doing, but you wonder, um, kind of the toll that this has on a person, no matter who they are. The only reporter to talk with Edwin on the record that we know of is Keith Morrison of Dateline NBC. Here's a portion of the episode that contained his phone interview with Edwin in prison. Now, you may recall that Laura, right after his capture, asked if he could call the media and said at his Oregon sentencing. Something I would like to speak to whoever's wanting to listen an honest desire to explain? Hello? Edwin? Yes. We were skeptical. So earlier this month, we called his bluff. I understand you've been wanting to tell your story for some time. But was he serious about explaining himself? No. Instead, Laura floated a strange little conspiracy theory about his bank statements. Yeah, I wish they would have gotten my statement, my bank statements, every time I stayed in Salem, Oregon. I wish they would have gotten that, but they never did. Right now, I'm, like, frustrated when it comes down to that. You know, but at this point, I honestly don't have nothing to say. Well, hang on a second. You've got to explain that to me a little bit. Well, what are you suggesting? Well, once they look into it, they'll be able to figure it out. But f- figure out what? There's a lot of things, so right now I don't have nothing to say. Well, that's that. And with that, Laura's conversation with us was over. Of course, we checked. And of course, his bank statements, like everything about him, have been examined in infinite detail. And the little charade in our phone call? (laughs) Who knows why? Strange, right? Edwin tried to imply that Andrea was in on the entire thing, which we know is not true. Like Dateline, we also checked with detectives when we started this podcast, and there was never any evidence Edwin had even met Andrea before the kidnapping. Hi, Ashley. It's Keith Morrison calling. Hey, Keith. I talked with Keith Morrison about that phone call to Edwin in prison. So you talked to Edwin um, over the phone. Uh, Tell me a little bit about your encounter and your interview with him. Edwin had led us to believe that he he might actually reveal something or 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 tell the truth finally um, after all his obfuscations, um, as if he wanted to come clean. 
Uh, and of course, that wasn't the case. Um, if he ever had any inclination to do so in the first place, uh, it <laughs> I, I rather doubt he did, frankly. Um, he wanted a chance to um, make himself less guilty, look less guilty. He wanted to try to blame others, and he wanted to throw shade on Andrea Mays, which was among the more disgusting uh, things I'd heard in a long time. And, um, you know, at that point I realized, eh, this is really, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not even sure why we're doing this. He's just baiting you or using you guys for whatever reason. He, he was he was trying to use us, absolutely. This is not uncommon, by the way. People uh, go to prison, and I guess they, they stew about things and they fret about them and they think that they have somehow uh, uh, been unfairly treated and they uh, they then after refusing to speak to people like me for a long time will decide okay I want my say now mm-hmm. but we, we debated about it for a while how much of a platform if any should we give this guy but what I remember of it it may, may not even be what went on on the air now um, but what I remember was feeding the the shock that this man would try to somehow um, suggest that Andrea Mays had something to do with the whole thing, that, you know, she was behind his behavior, that she was okay with his behavior or anything like that, um, in an effort to make himself look less bad. Mm-hmm. And he mentioned bank statements as well, which was kind of confusing. Oh, yeah, the bank statements. <laughs> and and <laughs> That's right. And, uh, the, you know, the suggestion being that somehow that would prove that, um, that this, that she was, that she was in, involved in it and, and that she, uh, you know, had some, a relationship with him, which went beyond what she, uh, admitted to. But in fact, that, he had alleged that to police before and they did a thorough investigation. And discovered that that was nonsense. Um, it was a it was a fantasy. It was made up by him. As for Andrea, she still struggles more than three years later. Do you think about this every day of your life? Kind of, yeah. There there's days where like, I mean, I'm not going to say that there's not a day that goes by where I don't think about it because something always triggers or something brings it up or a TV show or a song or. Something always reminds me of it, so it's something I'll never be able to just like go a day without thinking about. But it has gotten a lot easier to like be able to think about it and be able to watch certain shows. And like, because after everything happened for a while, I couldn't watch like my favorite, you know, Criminal Minds and Law and Order. Like, a lot of certain things in the episodes would trigger really badly what I had gone through, and I would just start crying. And like, I'd have to turn off the show and put on something else because. I just couldn't handle it. Even my mom too, she tells me she can't watch certain things because of everything that happened. Like it has deeply affected me and my family so, so, so much. Do you ever ask yourself, why me? Yeah, I do all the time. I'm like, why was it me out of everyone possible? But at the same time, like the outcome that came out of it, like I'm alive and I'm safe and I'm healthy. If it would have been someone else, I don't know, maybe they would have screamed, maybe they would have tried to run, maybe they would have, you know, tried to do something else and not made it out. So it's, things happen for a reason. 
She told me she's changed a lot. She used to be trusting and naive. Now she's cautious about everyone she meets. She's closed off, and she still can't move on from that mugshot that was broadcast publicly after her arrest in California. Delete that, burn it. Like that shouldn't even exist. That's not me. That's not who I am. Like I don't like people seeing that image of me because now seeing my mugshot, you can't put a picture of this strong, confident person next to a mugshot of someone who. Looks like they had just went through hell and back. Like those are two completely different people, and the person I'm trying to be today is not that very weak, like low person. And so it's hard to try to move past that and move forward when it's constantly being shared. Do you think people just don't know what to say to you when they treat you as this victim? I guess.、Yeah. Um, do you think they're just afraid of what they might say, or they just don't know what to say to you? Yeah, definitely. People don't know how to talk to me or how to ask questions or what to say, and I, I get it. Who does? Like, if someone else went through this, I wouldn't know how to address it or what to ask or what to not ask. And so it, it's been a learning experience for all my friends and family. Like, I have snapped at certain people when they ask a question or like, "Well, why didn't you just do it like that?" or "Why didn't you do it like that?" or And I'm like, well, you weren't there, so you have no idea like how I felt and what I was thinking and. It's definitely hard because I know a lot of people mean well, and they just want to like know how this happened or what my feelings and thoughts were. But a lot of times, people don't know how to ask those questions without coming off too strong or asking it and it being like it coming off like a different way or something. Even through all the heartache and pain, she's trying to use her experience for good. What do you want other people who have experienced trauma to know? I think your story is one that can provide a lot of hope. When you go through something, you can't sit there and paint yourself as a victim because if you do, you'll never move past it. You have to think of the situation and be like, okay, something terrible happened to me, but I can turn it around and make something good out of it. I can help others. I can share my story and. You know, the more you share your story, the more you talk about it. It does help. Like I don't know the last time I went and told my story like this, and I didn't cry not once. You like start going through a bunch of thoughts in your head, but like you have to like love yourself again and treat yourself with you know respect and kindness and move past and work on those things. It's just funny because you talked about how it has changed your life, and you are more cautious and aware of your surroundings. But when I look at you, I see a woman who is fearless and confident and owns what happened, but is looking forward. Yeah, and that's amazing. Yeah, and it, it is, and it's the only thing you can do because if you sit there and dwell on it, like I lost two years of my life that I could have done something with, you know, a career, or I could have gone to school, or I could have done a million things, but. I was just dead for two years, and my family will even tell you like I was not the same person. I was completely shut down, shut out of life. I didn't have any interests. I didn't want to do anything. And it wasn't until like I started setting goals for myself. Like I was like, you know what? I don't have a car. After everything happened, I lost my car. I lost my phone. I I lost a lot of money. I lost a lot of stuff. And I was like, why is all this happening to me? And I just felt like my life was going downhill. And it wasn't until I was—I woke up one day and I was like, you know what? Like, I need to turn myself around. Only person that's going to change this is me. And so I started setting goals for myself. And like, I was like, you know what? My dream car is my Jeep. I need to get my Jeep. And I worked so hard and I got my Jeep. And I was like, the happiest ever after I got it. It like definitely boosted my confidence, boosted my everything. And then my next goal was like, okay, now I want to like 
maybe get my own place and so that's something I'm working on now like saving up money and like trying to like work really hard to get my own place so it's just like those little goals you have to set some type of a goal and work towards it have something to look forward to because if not then you're just going to steer off and go down that path again and I never would have thought my story could touch other people and like inspire people and it's amazing to know that it does and you might write a book about it someday yeah that is in the works yeah Growing up here, dealing with everything that's going on now, I'm surprised this town's even standing. Bardstown, Kentucky is a small town in the heart of the Bluegrass State. But Bardstown, Kentucky also has secrets. Five unsolved murders over four years. Rumors and theories, and still no one is behind bars. I've been 100% grateful. Listen to what I'm saying. You listen to what I'm saying. Bardstown, a new podcast from Vault Studios. It's been you know, almost six years. There's still not a lot of answers. For his crimes in California, Edwin's case is still pending. It's likely he will never receive punishment for those crimes, since he's already serving two life terms in Oregon. For Jack Levy and Nima Gavimi and his family, that means they will never get justice for what happened to them. But neither seem to think much about it these days. Our producer, Destiny Johnson, talked with Nima recently. Honestly... I don't know. I kind of wanted him to have the death penalty low-key just because what he did was pretty messed up. You can't, I, I believe he, like, raped the girl, right? The girl he murdered? Yeah, he did. Yeah, like, I think that's, I don't know. Like, someone that does that then goes on a crime spree and then let other people live, like, there's something wrong with you. So, honestly, I kind of wanted him to die as bad as that sounds, but... So, we had a court subpoena for some time in October in 2018, but then they had called my dad saying he pleaded guilty or something, so we didn't need to go anymore. And that was it. Like, I haven't heard anything about the case since. And Jack Levy? Well, he's back to photographing butterflies. He still has lingering effects from that bullet that lodged in his stomach. Well, I, w- I was shot through the abdomen, and the bullet went out my back, missed the spine by about an inch. Um, and they had to take out part of my large intestine. So it was just a very long recovery, almost a month in the hospital and then about three weeks um, out of the hospital up in Medford before I was able to come back home. But it could have been worse. You know, if the bullet had been an inch over and hit my spine, I would not be ambulatory anymore. That would have made a much bigger difference in my life. He doesn't have energy like he used to, and he may have to get another surgery down the road. But he's not letting that stop him from taking photos in the mountains of Northern California. I forget if it was, uh, I think it was two years ago now, I went back and stayed in the same room I was in when I was shot at that Super 8 motel in Wairika. They had, uh, apparently the police had removed part of the wall where the bullet uh, stuck in the wall after it exited my backside, and um, then they had sort of redone the room to some extent. But what? I stayed in, stayed in the same room. <laughs> what made you want to go back to the same room? Well, I had stayed there several times before, and um, there were a couple of rooms 
that worked well for my purposes in terms of having space for me to bring my gear into the room and a desk or table to work at, preparing specimens, also um, being able to park on the ground floor right by my room so that it made it easier to get all the gear out of the car overnight and into the room and then back in the car the next morning. Jack, what was it like being back in that room? Did it kind of bring you back to that the night of the shooting? know how to answer that. Uh, I would say not so much. There have actually been um, a few incidents in earlier in my life that I think are more tra- traumatizing to me than this shooting was. Um, when I have nightmares, they tend not to be about the shooting. They tend to be about some of those other incidents earlier on. Have you been able to forgive him for what happened, or do you still hold anger? Well, uh, I don't worry about it one way or the other very much. You know, like I said, I, I moved on with my life. Um, I, you know, and I don't want you know when I have to think about it like I do now, talking to you. I don't know what his circumstances were. What caused him to do what he did. The one thing he does think about to this day is Kaylee's family. I don't know if I know all the details. Um, I feel very sad for those families that uh, were impacted. She seemed like a lovely young woman. And uh, that's just a very sad thing. For Kaylee's loved ones, the void from losing their beautiful daughter, sister, and granddaughter is immense. Their lives were shattered when Kaylee died, in a way nobody will understand. And they'll probably never be able to put it all back together. Trauma therapy has helped Dad Jamie and stepmom Crystal and their two sons try to find a new sense of normal. They told me embracing the grieving process is something that's been hugely important for them. You gotta, you can't have pride. You can't just be tough and think you're gonna get through this and you're just gonna bury it and go back to your daily grind. It's not gonna happen. It's gonna catch up with it. Even if you can pull it off for a little while, it'll bury you or it's gonna, it's gonna hit you like a freight train. So you have to learn to process it. It's, it's, Closest analogy that, that we've heard with this kind of severe loss is, is surviving a plane crash. Can't imagine either one. Of course, nobody can imagine if you haven't done it. You can't imagine it, but you, you kind of try to imagine it, going, what would that be like? And it's, uh, it's similar to PTSD with the military coming back. Your mind, you can't, the problem with the mind is it's not like a broken bone or, or a cut. You can see it's just as broken, but you can't tell. You sometimes can't even tell, and nobody else can tell from the outside. You look, oh, you're perfect. And everything you you have, you guys look great, all you're smiling. Uh, It's like, nope, totally broken and about ready to fall apart all the time. Uh, There's a hole that's that's there that you have to walk around that you want to just fall into and go away. But, you know, because we grieve so differently and and, um, trying to be understanding with what he goes through and what I go through, um, 
ask our word just is just be, you know, and try to give each other the space and and love each other through it. And sometimes it's hard, and sometimes it's like I'm right there. I get it. You know, yeah. he's gonna be sobbing on the ground, and I'm the strong one, or vice versa, or you know, I still try to be like mom and be like, is everybody still okay? You know, I'm still trying to fix it, and then. You know, I have a hard time finding me at times, so just be. Something else the Sawyers want the public to know is how grateful they are for the court-appointed advocates who helped them navigate life after Kaylee's death. And they're especially thankful to the police officers who gave the investigation everything they had. It's hard uh, to talk about this case. Like Detective Beckwith. There were a tremendous amount of people. He's reminded of Kaylee every single day. Because he drives Highway 126 to work, he passes the very spot Kaylee's body was found. Any police officer will tell you there's always that one case that sticks with them, year after year after year. I still think about it, you know. And for Detective Beckwith, it's Kaylee's case. Uh, sometimes I don't sleep. Even for this seasoned investigator, it's hard for him not to get emotional. You know, uh, but okay is a relative term, I mean. I still got to come here and work, you know. I got a family and a mortgage and stuff, you know. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I mean, we talk to each other, you know. I fish a lot, hang out with my family, you know. But How do you hope people remember Kaylee? Well, I, th I hope they remember Kaylee as being a warrior because she's, she, she beats him, right? She takes his life. Uh, if you think about it, let's just be straight, right? That confession gets thrown out. But Kaylee takes his life. While he's trying to kill her and he does kill her, uh, she takes his life um, by the way she fought, by the trail of evidence that she left behind. She does all the things we would want um, a victim to do. Uh, and she wins, right? Because he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. Um, effectively, his life is over. And uh, if the family can find some justice in that, then I'm okay with that, you know. Mm -hmm. As a way to keep Kaylee's legacy alive, her family has taken important steps to honor her. Kaylee's mom started a program called KK's Readers, after Kaylee's childhood nickname. The program donates the book, Oh, the Places You'll Go, to children in Head Start preschool classrooms across Central Oregon. The book by Dr. Seuss was one of Kaylee's favorites as a child, and she always loved the fact that she shared a birthday with the famous author. Jamie and Crystal have also worked hard to make sure Kaylee's story isn't forgotten. And they took their mission all the way to Oregon's legislature. They advocated for a change in state law to prevent what happened to Kaylee from happening to anyone else. Senate Bill 576, also known as Kaylee's Law, was approved unanimously by Oregon Senate and House, a monumental moment for the Sawyers. We were told it's honorable. It's hard to do these kind of things because you don't feel like normal people. Like this is, this is not something you do, and it's hard to fathom. So you need people to reinforce you, going, "No, this is a good thing to do. You're not doing this for selfish or personal reasons. This is a bigger picture. In fact, you have no idea how big this is." And we're like, so we had to keep getting reinforced from the people that are helping us, going, "No, this is a big deal." 
Kaylee's law mandates stricter vetting of private security officers, like the ones at Central Oregon Community College. Campuses must conduct nationwide background checks on officers, and their uniforms must look different than those of police officers. The law also requires their vehicles have GPS devices and video systems and prohibits them from having a red and blue light bar on the top and a cage inside, like the vehicle Edwin Lara drove. We actually do know that his, in his words, he knew that he has influenced her by his position. Yes. He actually said in his confession that he, he used his position of trust mm -hmm. to get her in the back. I mean, she should have been perfectly safe walking down that road. You know, if... if uh, the, the entity that hired her uh, had done their due diligence with what seems common sense in Kaylee's law, very unlikely that would have happened. You don't have the cage, you don't have the child locks, you don't have the uniform, the car outfitted the same way. You're not allowed to stop and frisk. You have a GPS and or cameras on board. You have a dispatcher that knows where you are and if you're not where you're supposed to be, you have alarms. You have anything that any other security organization that I've talked to has already that's private. And they said there's no way they can operate without that. There's too much liability. Right. You wouldn't do it. And now, it's my honor to introduce our governor, Kate Brown. In 2019, Oregon Governor Kate Brown made Kaylee's Law official in Kaylee's hometown of Bend. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all so much for being here today. And thank you to District Attorney Hummel and his team for hosting us here. I'm extremely honored to be here with you today to sign Kaylee's Law. While this legislation focuses on specific scenarios, at its heart, its focus is about making our campuses safer for our students. Parents send their children off to college with high hopes for good grades, great friends, and broadened horizons but they never expect to lose a child. Kaylee Sawyer's death was a tragedy, and we wanna make sure that this never happens to a promising Oregonian again. I want to close today in Kaylee's spirit and focus on the positives this legislation brings. More transparency, better safety, and a way to forever remember Kaylee Sawyer. Just outside the Deschutes County Courthouse on a warm, breezy summer day. So let's go ahead and sign the legislation. Kaylee's family, along with advocates and politicians, all gathered around a table. Would the family please come on up? And I'd like to invite our legislators, our elected officials, our law enforcement, Madam Attorney General, come on up and join us for the bill signing, please. As the governor inked her signature. The gravity of the situation slowly sank in. Good afternoon. As Jamie spoke to the crowd. Today is a bittersweet day, to say the least. Never could I or would I have wanted to imagine walking through the last few years as we have, learning to live a new normal in the wake of our daughter's horrendous murder and being given the opportunity to change history because of that murder. Being able to do something truly noble, righteous, and monumental in honor of Kaylee to help others has helped soften some of our pain and loss. However, the toll it has taken mentally and physically is tremendous. The new friends and relationships 
created through this process over the last few years are incredibly important to Crystal and I. This is one of the reasons I'm up here today. Crystal and I feel we have not had the proper opportunity to acknowledge our gratefulness for those that have encouraged, supported, and walked with us through these tumultuous times. Some of these people I speak of have also had great loss in their lives and made sacrifices and commitment to change criminal law and victims' rights long before Kaylee's murder. The actions of these individuals and many others in history directly affected the outcome of our daughter's murder case and the invaluable rights and advocacy we were given, rights and laws not in place years ago. These current rights and laws kept us involved with the prosecutors, ending any sentence that keeps us from having to be re-traumatized through the appeals process. If it was not for victims' rights and the advocacy program, our support and mental health would have been drastically minimalized. I pray that Crystal and I have and continue to represent Kaylee well. I know she would be so proud of us as we are of her. Our warrior princess, as a friend described her. Lord, I praise you and am grateful for your presence in our lives, for grace, peace, strength I didn't know I had, for wisdom and confident hope to be with my girl again beyond this life. Father, help us continue to run this race well. And I ask for your blessing over this crowd gathered today in Jesus' great name. Amen. Thank you all for coming. It was a day that's forever cemented in Jamie's mind as one of his most important. And one he still thinks about today. Everybody comes up to shake your hand and tells you, but you're just like stunned going, really I don't know how to take it? this. I just don't yeah. know how to take something so big. It's, it's Herculean and you don't get it. You just still, it doesn't quite set in going, what have we done? We just kind of did it. It's like, and when I go to do something, she knows is if I set my mind to it, I'm in it to win it. I mean, we're, we're doing it. And it was kind of like no doubt since day one that this was gonna, this was gonna happen. Didn't know it was gonna happen this way, but it was, going to happen, some form or another. Jamie and Crystal aren't done. They hope to bring national attention to Kaylee's law and someday see it become national legislation. They never want another family to go through what they have. And they're not going to stop telling Kaylee's story. Is there anything you'd want to say to Kaylee? You could tell her anything. Hmm. Uh, Miss her. Yeah. It's weird, but the only th the, instead of anger, the thing that I've felt a lot uh, with her is, uh, is I get more grief-stricken than I do just with anger about the whole thing, and I just want to tell her I'm sorry. You know, what do you, what do you think Kaylee would think of the work you're doing and just what do you think she would have to say today? I can actually say that I think that knowing her dad has always fought for her and will continue will and she's always been proud of him. Um, she'd be immensely proud of him. Yep. Huge. I know it. Yep. One of the things I can hang my hat on is that 
she would be proud and we're in the and that's what we're doing this for and I get this picture that she's smiling. Uh, I had some words come into my head actually right after the, the house, that before right after the house vote. And uh, that was brutal that day, but I literally heard in her voice tell me, said, um, said I'm okay, Dad, you can rest now. This was the final episode of our series. Thanks for listening. Next week, we hope you tune in for a special roundtable discussion with the team that produced this show. We talk about making Urge to Kill and examine the lawsuit Kaylee's family has filed against Edwin Lara's employer, Central Oregon Community College. And before we go, we'd like to share this song written as a tribute to Kaylee from her friend and recording artist, Chandler P. It's called When We Meet Again. If I had the chance to turn back time, I would. Just to see your face, to see you smile, I would. If I had the wings, so I could fly, I would. Tell you everything that's on my mind, I would. When we meet again When we meet again La da 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 When we meet again When we meet again La da 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 da
Urge to Kill is a KGW and Vault Studios production. Please subscribe and leave us a rating or review. We've got a lot more information, including videos and pictures, on kgw.com slash urge to kill. You can also follow us on Instagram at urge to kill podcast and join the urge to kill Facebook group on KGW's Facebook page. This show is written and hosted by me, Ashley Korslin. It's produced by me, Destiny Johnson and Mila Mamitsa. It's edited by Zachary Carver and Destiny Johnson. Original artwork by Jeff Patterson and videography by Eric Patterson. Special thanks to Dateline NBC, Ellen Boynton, and KGW management and staff. If you or a loved one are a victim of sexual assault, help is available 24-7. Call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. Or you can find help at www.online.rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N.